This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica, and on this week's show, I'm joined by Shireen and Brenda. On this week's show, we're going to talk about refugees, sports, and all of the intersection of these two. In camp and outside as well, um, the effect on mental health on athletes and everybody has been, you know, disproportionately terrible. And I mean, those with privilege with stability are suffering in this time. And we know that. So what does it look like for people that do not have that stability? And what kind sports seems to be a place where they can benefit from for all, you know, aforementioned reasons. Then we'll burn things that deserve to be burned, highlight the torchbearers who are giving us hope during this dark time, let you know what's good in our world and tell you what we are watching this week. But first, before we get into all of that, it's spring. We're now in that shoulder season between the cold of winter and the heat of summer. Happy Passover and an early happy Easter to all who are celebrating. Here in Austin, we are in, though I am worried we're possibly already on our way out of, this magical period where the weather is generally nice and we aren't completely overrun with mosquitoes. Aaron and I do not have a green thumb We have the opposite of that. So we just had a gardener plant a bunch of plants and flowers in our front yard. So this season, I'm particularly excited to see those grow. And then during the horrible week of ice and snow here in Texas, a bunch of plants died. Like I just took Ralph on a walk and there are just bags of like dead plants that people are waiting for the compost people to come pick up. And so I'm excited to see Anytime something blooms right now, it just feels so magical. Uh, what do you like about this season, Shereen? So I'm ruminating. Y'all know I'm a fall girl. So I'm ruminating about spring. I prefer fall because there's something vulnerable, but there is something vulnerable about spring, like blooming of what was previously dead, as you mentioned, and the possible birth, rebirth mm-hmm. of flora, scented beauty, maybe outdoor visits. We're getting into our third wave of COVID. We'll probably be locked down till June. So that freshness and outdoor that do, right? And does spring bring possibility, hope? This is my novel today. <laughs> I'm like, you're like a poet today. Okay. <laughs> that was lovely. Thank you, Shereen. Bren, what about you? Well, I'm. I one thing I like, I'll start with the negatives about what of I course. like. Um, there's no pumpkin spice in spring. There's no equivalent. So that's amazing. McDonald's tried with the shamrock shake. Ha ha, didn't work. So um, it turns out that the real smell of flowers is way better. <laughs> so just as a season train, I would argue or try to lobby you over to our spring side. 
Despite allergies and yard work, I love spring because it means that summer's almost here and I fucking love summer. So it feels like how can I complain when it's just a lead up, you know? I'm excited because we're going to have blue bonnet season here and I've been thinking about ways to get Ralph to go lay down in the blue bonnet so he can have a little photo shoot. So hopefully we, we can find a nice patch somewhere that he'll cooperate with us. We want to introduce you to Alfonso Davies. Here's a clip from a BBC Sport video from October 2019. I'm Alfonso Davies. I'm 18 years old, born in Ghana, grew up in Canada. I was born in Ghana. My parents uh, flee from Liberia, Civil War. It wasn't easy running away from war. You don't know where your kids are. Everyone's all over the place. I think uh, three years ago was the first time, first time I saw my sister. It was a tough time for the family, and I'm happy that you know, they, they came came to a good country like Canada where we can be something. Uh, so every time I step on the field, you know, I, I do it for my family. I do it for them. As he mentioned there, Davies was born in a refugee camp in Ghana after his parents fled civil war in Liberia. They moved to Canada when he was five, and he was officially granted Canadian citizenship in 2017. He plays for the Bundesliga club Bayern Munich and the Canadian national team. And he is now a Goodwill ambassador for UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency. According to the New York Times, Davies, quote, hopes to use the position to raise money to renovate soccer facilities and refugee camps. He is not only the first Canadian, but also the first soccer player to be afforded the honor. Here's a clip of Davies talking about his new position and refugees around the world. I am proud to join the UNHCR as a Goodwill ambassador and speak up for refugees. There are over 80 million people around the world who had to flee their homes, and these numbers are only going up. COVID-19 has made life hard for everyone, including for refugees. For many of them, access to basic clean water, soap, and now vaccines can be very difficult. When I look back at my life, I often wonder, where would I have been if I stayed in the refugee camp? Would I have made it as a professional footballer? That's why I want people to know about the importance of helping refugees. They need our support for their immediate need to survive, but also for education and access to sports so they can thrive. Shireen, Davies has said that soccer is how he fit in once he got to Canada. Has soccer or even sport more broadly worked this way for other refugees? I know that Amnesty International has a program called Football Welcomes, which uses football to promote integration and inclusion for communities made up of refugees and people seeking asylum. Are there other programs like this? Yeah, I think it's really important to note that in the tradition of sport being used as a vehicle for empowerment, it's also used as a tool to help people recover from conflict, displacement, and it really certainly does help. There's a quite amount of scholarship on this about how it's used for PTSD, for post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So that is actually what we see in the aftermath of what happened in Syria and these huge displacements of people, particularly in Central Africa. Football is conveniently used because it's the least expensive thing to do. You can involve 23 people, which includes an official, and one ball. And you can play with uh, equipment or without equipment. And so it's commonly done. And this is one of the reasons that it's that it's probably the most useful. Other th- other types of sport include taekwondo, for certainly for young girls. We've seen that in Zathari refugee camp. Um, outside of Syria, we've seen that in many different places. And I think it's important to note that this can be done in such a positive way, because not only are we dealing with the complete crumbling of 
not just a child, but women's life and community and everything they've known, this brings a certain amount of not only physical strength and reestablishment of self, but confidence as well. And then possibly new skill learning, which is which is always wonderful. And then adjacent to that, you see organizations over the world. And that what I was specifically referring to was in camp. So you have different sport development agencies doing stuff in camps. But after people have applied for asylum and then migrated from those spaces, there's also organizations around the world that help create policy, they create best practices, and harm reduction is the most important in all these pieces. Um, I was part of Fair Network that we love on the show. Um, They had a project called Inspire. So it was basically a best practices document to offer to places, organizations around the world that were seeing an influx of refugees wherever they were from. It was provided in different languages, and it was called Inspire. And um, I think it's really... It was it was something that was based in Europe, but could be applied around the world. I certainly, uh, you know, spread it around in Canada to the people I knew. I was very um, involved in working with Syrian refugees when they first came to Canada in 2016, and um, was part of a program that was unofficial. It doesn't have to be official; like anybody can do it and get like a space and get people together. But it was really helpful because, as we know, football is a language of the world. And you don't have to speak the same language. You just have to speak football. And, you know, I could cry about this. Your cat is crying about it. My cat is crying about her. She emphatically thought it emphatically agrees with this. So, you know, on the the flip side of that, there's always, and I certainly, and Brenda and I talk about this all the time, are concerns about white saviorism in terms of these product, projects being implemented. And how is it? Like, what's the white gaze coming in? Is the understanding of geopolitical situation? Is there an understanding of the women and what their needs are? Are there language barriers? Are there cultural understanding barriers? Because as much as, you know, I'm a Muslim woman that tries to understand, you can't just put me there and say that I'll understand something when I don't know. It's a crucial to involve people on the ground that are already doing this work. And that's one thing I want to say again, in these places where always women doing work, always, already. So find out what is happening there, as opposed to parachuting in and trying to do what, you know, like intake and centering the people who need that help is always most important. Thank you, Shireen. And while these programs are great, I'd like to zoom out for a second, because there's not a lot of coverage about the status of refugees around the world. Brenda, what do we know right now? There's been a huge drop-off in coverage, but not any sign of refugees um, and the need for state waning. So what we have, and of course, these statistics are incredibly hard to come by, and you can imagine why. So the estimates are around, well, over 20 million refugees and um, another 5 to 6 million Palestinians Um, who we should say don't have state status in the way that the UN thinks it should. Um, About a quarter of those are from Syria. So even though there's been a huge drop-off in the discussion about Syria, it doesn't mean that Syrians have found places that they've been settled. And so it's interesting to think about, interesting as in tragic and awful, I guess, to think about how long these crises happen. So one thinks, oh, I think back to the Angolan civil war, and there are millions of Angolans that suffered displacement that still today have not been adequately settled. So there's a long way to go. And one of the most troubling things when you read about it is the increase in environmental refugees. So 
environmental refugees are people fleeing because of natural disasters, volcanoes, tsunamis, droughts, floods. Right now, South Sudan, they estimate this year there'll be about 350,000 refugees from floods. Um, this is in a addition to and compacting the political crisis. And of course, that environmental crisis is caused by the world's most developing nations. But those nations aren't really interested in providing, you know, commensurate help with the crisis. So even though the United States is one of the largest contributors to the UN, both the high commissioner, but really the the refugee um, section of the UN, it's not proportionate. And Germany is very, very low in contributions because it considers itself to be a place that takes in. So, so there's the issue of what what you contribute. The U.S. is one of the 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 lowest on the list of developing of developed nations to take in refugees. It takes in so few refugees, but the environmental impact of the United States is so high that um, it seems really unfair. Uh, right now, the International Red Cross estimates there's more environmental refugees than political refugees today. Wow. I know. And that's it. I mean, that makes sense when as you lay it out. But yeah. Yeah. And it's not it's not separate from the political question, but it's just exacerbating it to a really frightening extent. Um, the I will say that President Joe Biden um, signed an executive order that calls for a change to refugee processing um, just last week. And he said a limit for the fiscal year, but it increased uh, about 125,000, whereas refugee admissions reached an historic low during the Trump administration. And he considered that a hallmark of his presidency. So we should remember that one of the hallmarks of that administration was to deny um, state status to people fleeing crises created by the United States in part. And of course, we're now and a pandemic as we sit here. Bren, what has been COVID's impact on refugees? Like, What are some of the long-term effects of the pandemic? So it has been, as you can imagine, a very deadly place, a very stressful place with crowded conditions, people not wanting to work uh, in those places <laughs> where they normally do, where it's not even safe. Um, it, the resettlement, basically it's made resettlement much, much more difficult. And so who's going to take in refugees and then who's going to take in refugees during COVID? And so almost every place is having a crisis also because refugee camps are in this weird political uh, space as our refugees, which is what's so sad, which is who controls the refugee camp? Are refugee camps run by the state of Greece, for example, or are they run by the UN or are they run by the local province? And so there's a series of laws that makes that really hard. So you can imagine that once COVID happens, um, not only are the conditions within the camps terrible, the conditions of people that go into the work to do the work in the camps is incredibly difficult. But then on top of it, to get people resettled when countries like, you know, let's say Canada has almost entirely closed its borders um, to, to places that were, you know, used to be open. And I'm not criticizing that decision. <laughs> I'm just saying you can imagine. Yeah. And that makes me wonder about vaccine distribution. And like, if you don't even know who's in charge of these spaces, how, how will that work when we get there? Shereen? 
One of the things that I think is really impactful is the way in which, you know, the discussions are done from a critical lens, because UNHCR has actually does work intrinsically with the International Olympic Committee. And on the one hand, I'm like, ew, because that's all just a mess. See previous Burn It All Down episodes. But on the other hand, the reach of the Olympic Committee and the budget have and the lack of constraints that they have, you know, there's a piece, and we'll put it in the show notes, the UNHRC has what's called the Olympic Refugee Foundation, and they actually offer scholarships to, and we've talked about Team Refugee before, I wrote about it in 2016, um, which is the first time we saw it. But what it does is I think we think about displacement for people, not only are their whole lives upended, but when they actually moved and are settled, what kind of supports are offered to them then as they are stateless? Because the process, as Brenda just defined, if, you know, attaining a citizenship somewhere else is not easy, particularly in a pandemic. And how that's been affected in COVID is in camp and outside as well. Um, the effect on mental health on athletes and everybody has been, you know, disproportionately terrible. And I mean, those with privilege, with stability are suffering in this time. And we know that. So what does it look like for people that do not have that stability? And what kind sports seems to be a place where they can benefit from for all, you know, aforementioned reasons. And I think that there's, you know, the IOC love they love think tanks so they have think tanks about this like they have committees like FIFA loves committees the IOC loves think tanks bureaucracy loves committees loves committees so they have committees they have a call of solutions from the Olympic Refugee Foundation and there is the ironically the IOC president Thomas Bach is also chair of the ORF committee foundation so it's like yeah. And then as much as I'm uncomfortable with everything that happens there, I know that there's work being done on the ground and that actually does trickle in. And what happens is the settlement agencies and help agencies here or in, in, in Western countries where mostly people are reestablished, um, there, there's an accountability piece, which I think is really important because it's not just about refugees coming and getting a place here. It's about their settlement literally where they go and what that looks like and these organizations then help them like I know in Canada Jumpstart which is funded by Canadian Tire is a great organization that for they did this thing that if there was soccer clubs charging fees for Syrian refugees you would just send them and they would cover all the fees and we don't think about how expensive sport can be it's very expensive, even recreationally. So who has access to it beyond just being in the camp? So we have to think about this holistically. Yeah, with the pandemic on top, it's it's quite a thing. And Bren, you mentioned this before, but I want to come back to it, that these are stories that are happening now. COVID is happening now. We all hope and pray, if you pray, that this will go away, that you know vaccines will work, the variants will die off, all these sorts of things. But that does not mean that the impact of what's happening now will end, right? Like uh, the, it could be decades later for a lot of these people. It can take a very long time, right? It can take so long and it usually does. And I think just to use football as a way to understand this for me, um, many listeners who are into global football might recognize this name and some of you don't perhaps, but Rio Mavuba who played for the French national team and captain the U21 French team, um, 
was named Rio for a river because he was actually born at sea in 1984. His father, some people might also remember, was Mafulia Mavuba, a footballer who was at the 1974 World Cup with Zaire. Um, his parents were caught um, in the Angolan Civil War in a really violent conflict, and they had to leave. And essentially, his passport read, read born at sea. He was born at sea as they were fleeing this Angolan conflict. It took them a long time to leave and find um, a, a boat to take them to France. He doesn't really talk about the details, and he doesn't really know them because his mother died uh, when he was two, so only after a year um, in being in France, and then his father um, ab about 10 years later. And at that point, he said he launched his football career to go, you know, he just threw himself into it. He was living with an aunt um, in Bordeaux. And just, I want to say, he did not get his French nationality until 20 years later, until 2004. 20. When the French, 20 years later, when the French national team, he had no state. So he was stateless for decades. Stateless. Wow. But it said, born at sea. Wow. And so he lived in Bordeaux his entire childhood. It was only when the French national team wanted him, oh. and they started this process in 2004, when the French national team wanted him to play because essentially um, DRC had approached him and asked them to be on his team. And the French said, oh, wait a second. Of course. And so um, it's, sure, it's a happy story for him in some way, but mostly heartbreaking and reveals what most people would go through. If this happened to him, then think of what happens to people like me without that kind of talent who are caught in these situations. But one interesting part of all of this is that athletes have, as we've talked about endlessly on this show, they have a different, bigger platform than a lot of people. And so they end up educating a lot of people about refugees. Bren? They do. And a lot of the footballers that we've seen have kept some of the stories alive that the press and mainstream journalism have forgotten. For example, you have Zlatan, one of the most outspoken and talented footballers of his generation that is Bosnian, that constantly, you know, will reference that conflict. But probably even more productive was the work of Dejan Lovren, who actually fled Bosnia. And the reason his story is important is not only because at Liverpool, he made such an effort to campaign for England to open up its borders, um, and for Germany, that's because when he fled the Bosnian conflict as a child, they fled to Germany and were turned away. So ended up at a refugee camp and then exiled, had nowhere to go. Um, essentially, we're just were just turned back at a, at a certain point. And they ended up in Croatia and he where he eventually would go on to star for the Croatians. And when he did that, he was very pointed in saying, hey, I'm looking at you, Germany. So sure, I fled this conflict, but my parents and my life could have been very different if you would have, you know, allowed us to stay. And so that work, I think, on his part, on Lovren's part, was, was really powerful. Shireen? Yeah, if we're going to talk Croatia, I mean, one of the most, you know, well-known yeah. refugees that came from that time is Luka Modric, who is co-captain of Real Madrid and FIFA 2018 finalist runner-up. He was a Ballon d'Or winner. And 
you know, it's very much a part of his story to be displaced during that time. I was in high school when the war in Bosnia broke out and he was a child and talks about how what his life was before, you know, and you get a very picturesque idea of a village and there's mountain goats involved in his grandparents and him learning how to play football, as so many children do, and then completely wrecking that. And I think one of the things that is so important in the story is that you can take a ball with you and that is that is a piece of you and it goes with you wherever you are and it's something you know and is so built into your identity that it can go with you and I think that's one of the things that sport has the power to do and you know there's there's ways in which as well um, Luka Modric doesn't speak a lot about it although his story is often used he himself doesn't speak it and I think for those athletes that choose to, all the power to them. Although I do understand the trauma that is associated with us. And if they don't, we shouldn't expect that of people. And I feel strongly about that generally. But, you know, then you have Alex Scott, who was one time captain of Arsenal women's side, who went in, who does not come from a refugee experience, but she went to a refugee camp, an Iraqi one, um, and uh, in Iraq of Syrian refugees in 2016, and, you know, played with the young, young girls there and what that meant to them and their faces are delighted. It's an absolutely beautiful. Mm. It's Don't get me wrong. It's a complete opportunity for Arsenal as a club to like make themselves look far better in their politics than they actually are. But for her, it was undoubted the effect it had on her personally because we don't understand the conditions. We think, oh, no, that's really hard for them, but they're getting supported. What that means to have your entire life shattered and then moved and how we talk about resiliency and how that word is overused when it comes to... to uh, to, to kids. And the other thing I just wanted to say again, and we're talking about, uh, you know, athletes who speak out about this, because there are not very many, to be honest, that speak about. There's so many things to speak about, but in the wider context, particularly from the lens of Canada, the United States, there are not a lot that speak about refugees. And two of the most, you know, prominent ones who are doing work and not just talking about it, Mark and Pau Gasol, two basketball players originally from Spain, spent their off season actually in the Mediterranean, helping an organization rescue refugees that were drowning or in peril. And it, they have you know, spoken publicly about this, stories have been done about it, but just the way that they speak of it is incredible to me, and so few do. So I just wanted to say that we'll also attach that story to the show notes. I wanted to ask about women specifically, if there's a gendered aspect. I mean, Shireen has brought this up before, so I'd like to go into it just a little bit. Um, what about women refugees, Bren? Well, as you can imagine, many of the programs that focus on football in refugee living are focused on boys. Uh, the idea that somehow boys might fall into quote unquote trouble is part of that. Um, and you hear that language a lot. There are some really prominent women, Nadia Nadim, the Afghani Danish player whose father was executed by the Taliban. Um, they had to flee Afghanistan, ended up in Denmark. I mean, her story is um, amazing and nuanced because she's going to talk about, you know, the obstacles to women in Afghanistan um, playing. And uh, that's really important to hear people like her who will explain, you know, if I would have been in Afghanistan, would I have been a footballer at all? But also saying I shouldn't have had to leave Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, both right. those things can be true. So there's, yeah, there's a really like, um, 
careful politics around this, but we really do need to constantly remind ourselves that these programs need to be gender inclusive because if left to their own devices, they won't be. Yeah, it's the world in a recap right there. Shireen? Yeah, and I think it's really important to understand that the stresses and the experiences that women face are absolutely not the same as men. <laughs> like, And that can be addressed through these programs. Like, Particularly, there's one organization that I love. One of my bucket lists is to work with them. They're in Berlin, and they're called Discover Football. They actually work specifically with immigrant women. And there's, there's organizations like this all over Europe and North America that do specific work around you know, the needs of immigrant women, and they're also facing structures of white supremacy, you know, misogyny, every, everything else. And so it uses football to integrate and include them and include is a really important where they're also understanding that they're suffering from stress and pain from leaving. And one of the most foremost things they talk about, and so do Les Degommeuses, who are friends of the show, they're a French organization run by queer women in Paris, and shout out to them because their work is wonderful. They work a lot with North African women. Um, is this piece of inclusion, but also understanding that women from these situations desperately miss their homelands. It's not like, oh, congratulations, you should be so happy to be here, because this is something we forget in the conversation about refugees, they desperately miss their homelands, and they're innocent people were got caught up in a conflict. So I think that's just important to keep in mind when we think about this. Yeah. Thank you both so much for all of this. This has been wonderful. To wrap up, let's talk about one of the best stories about refugees in sport, and we know it's coming. The, Olymp the Olympic refugee team. Shireen, is there an update? What can we expect this summer? Well, there'll be an update very soon. Um, we're not 100% sure. We know that the Olympics were probably happening without spectators. But in terms of this specific thing, I think we in the next couple days, weeks, we can expect some more firm announcement with regards to team refugee. That's awesome. So we'll get to hear these people's stories as another great opportunity um, for this kind of press that Brenda was talking about that we lose a lot of the time. This is one of, in my limited media around this, I, that's one of the biggest stories that I can remember. To wrap this up, we thought it'd be nice to end with the voices of people who participated in Fairnet's Inspire Conference, the one that Shireen mentioned earlier in the program. This included our own Shireen Ahmed. It was in Warsaw, Poland in December, 2018. Some people think uh, that refugees cannot play football. I don't know why. <laughs> some people can give money, some people can give time, but I think merely just having conversations and spreading awareness about what is happening and ultimately sharing that we're all the same. This is not just a European problem, this is a global collective problem. No two people's experiences are going to be the same. Inside the field, everyone is a player. Doesn't matter where they're from, you're just a football player. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Football is a tool also to empower women. So when I came to Paris, uh, and I was alone, no friends, kind of stressed, I decided to find a football team. Everyone is, is welcome. In French, you say you have a second half, second half, and the third half. And the third half, which normally is in a bar, uh, it's as important as the first half and the second half. I had to leave the country, but I never, I never left my dreams. Football helps really to meet one another and to appreciate one another. Refugees inspire. Refugees inspire. Refugee inspire. Refugee inspire. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit BetterHelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. everyone, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. On top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month. 
the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you for just the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you wanna grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited. So get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com join. On Thursday, Amira talks with professional footballer and former U.S. Women's National Team player Megan Klingenberg about Re-Ink, the lifestyle brand founded by her, Kristen Press, Tobin Heath, and Megan Rapino. They talk about athletes redefining businesses, making gender-neutral and body-inclusive fashion, and their newest collection, Gamer, which finds connections and empowerment between sports and gaming. There's nothing out there made for people like me or people like us. And so we wanted to go about changing that because ultimately fashion is just an outward representation of your inner power. And we want people to be able to show that on the outside, be like, yeah, this is exactly how I feel most comfortable. And exact, I love to look you know, dope as hell. But also, like, you know, this this is this is me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment that we like to call the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. I'm going to start us off today. This week, I saw a New York Times article titled NFL Clears Way for End to Washington Football Team Turmoil. And I thought, oh, is Dan Snyder selling the team? Because Dan Snyder is the worst. But truly, Jessica, you naive baby. <laughs> of course it's not that. And in fact, it is the opposite. Dan Snyder, quote, is close to a deal with fellow NFL owners that will give him greater control over the franchise while he pays a fine for executives' misconduct. <laughs> He's asking to take on an extraordinary amount of debt, $450 million, so he can buy out minority partners. And when this happens, he and his family will then control 100% of the club. <laughs> It's wild that anyone anywhere thinks that Snyder's total control over this team will end the turmoil going on there. Lest anyone has forgotten, Snyder was the big white holdout when it came to the team's former racist name. It was under Snyder that lots of women on the business side of operations were harassed and that barely paid anything team cheerleaders were used as personal sexual objects for the team's sponsors and sweet holders. Also, let me read to you the literal next to last paragraph of this New York Times article, quote, the Washington Post reported that two women had accused Snyder in separate episodes of harassment dating to 2004, which he denied, and that he reached a financial settlement in 2009 with a female former executive who had accused him of sexual misconduct during a trip on a private jet. Way to save this for the end of the article, New York Times. According to the Washington Post, that woman who settled with Snyder made, quote, a serious accusation of sexual misconduct. Now stick with me here. The team's general counsel sued, so the Washington NFL team's general counsel sued the woman the NFL has hired to look into all of this. Yes, there's the findings of an investigation coming soon, despite the fact that they're going to give this man the whole team. The team was trying to get that investigator not to look into a particular case from 2009 involving a settlement. The Post couldn't determine if it was the exact same case involving the serious accusation of sexual misconduct they were reporting on, or... If there was another one from the same year, though most evidence points to it being the same case. It really makes you wonder what details we'd learn about Snyder if more information came to light. I guess the New York Times and I have a different definition of turmoil. 
I want to light all of this on fire. Burn. Burn. Shereen, what are you burning? Um, just trigger warning as well for white supremacy. Friend of the show, former guest of the show, Hamal Javeri, who was employed at USA Today for eight years and was the sport media group's race and inclusion editor, was fired last week. And I just want to read you a little clip that we can also put in the show notes about she explains what happens. And the email that she got basically stated that she had violated USA Today's standards and ethics, which is what the, the editor had said. And this all started in from a tweet where she was talking, as she very candidly often does tweet, about white supremacy. And it was in reference to a sh- the shooting incidents that also happened in the United States. And she there was social media outrage about what she said and her response. And this was actually a response to uh, Julie DeCaro. And she says, it's always angry white men, always. And that was her perspective before the shooter, who was actually a racialized man, was discovered to be the perpetrator of this violence. Essentially, she was fired. And one of the things was, is that she talked about the stress that she's endured, the microaggressions that she's endured. And although she's very clear to say her role with her subsection for the win at USA Today was an incredible group of people who had her back and thought very similarly and had the same vision of anti-oppression that she does. She loved that team to work with. She stated this over and over again, and she will always, always support their work. But the higher ups is where the problem happened. And I think that this is something that I just want to read from Hamel's medium blog post that she wrote, quote, I've often written that in sports, the burden of speaking out against racism, sexism and homophobia often falls on the shoulders of marginalized players. Within USA Today, most of this work is also done by racialized reporters. In my case, I rarely, if ever, had the support of USA Today's top editors. When the fallout from each column left me vulnerable to social media attacks and harassment, USA Today never offered public institutional support, end quote. And I think this is really, really pivotal to understand that if you're going to pretend that your network, your outlet, your organization is anti-oppressive or backs, back your reporters, back them the fuck up because there is a stress, there is a burden on racialized and marginalized folks from doing this work. And if you don't have the support of your higher up, it leads you to an inordinate amount of hate, which is what happened with Hamal. The reason this got escalated is because the alt-right got wind of it and started to accuse her of racism against white men. Flamethrowers, that is not a fucking thing. But it became a thing because of the way that she was harassed and the public pressure that was put on by those groups. And as women who have been harassed by that specific section, we know what this is. Those are targeted attacks. They are organized through different ways just to inundate. And that's what happened. And I'm sorry. I think this is bullshit. I'm a racialized writer. And obviously, I've got you know, we at Burn It All Down and all of us, racialized or not, offer solidarity to Hamel. Whoever gets you and picks you up for your work will be incredibly lucky. The work you've done is profoundly important in these spaces where five years ago, these conversations were not even happening. So I want to take that bullshit in sports media and I want to burn it all down. Burn. Burn. Bren, what's on your burn pile? 
This week, civic leaders uh, around Korea held protests demanding the termination of the contract of Japanese footballer Rohai Michibuchi. He is currently under contract as of last week with K-League 2 in Asan FC. He had just transferred because he had been previously fired from Club Sendai in Japan. The reason he was fired was because of his at least third charge of intimate partner violence. The first charge came in 2017, and at the time he was arrested and he admitted to the charges. He was then detained, and I just want to give a trigger warning to skip for the next few seconds if you want. Um, He was then um, detained because of punching the woman in the face, kicking her legs, and leaving her alone after an an argument in a building in Tokyo's Koto Ward. Okay, so that happened. Then um, he went on to continue to play. In 2020, he once again was convicted and admitted to intimate partner violence. Then again in 2021, and in this case, it was a, a, an actress. We don't know exactly the, the person um, and who she is. She has not decided to disclose her name, but we know she's a, a fairly powerful actress that was able to get him fired um, because that's what it takes. And so after this, he was transferred to the K-League. And of course, I want to burn you know, his behavior, but that would be too little. So what I really would like to focus on is just the transfer of players in global football. That's what you do when things like this happen. You transfer teams, you take Cristiano Ronaldo, and you send him from England to Spain to Italy, and none of that manages to follow them. So we need international regulations in global football to stop the transfer of players that shouldn't be playing, where the leagues themselves would have sanctions. Those need to transfer just like their transfer fees. So I want to burn the fact that they get a clean record and they just get to go to another country and sign a contract that they shouldn't be able to. So burn. Now to highlight people carrying the torch and changing sports culture. First, we want to honor snowboarder Julie Pomogalski, who competed in the 2002 and 2006 Olympics for France and who won the World Championship in Snowboard Cross in 1999. She was killed in an avalanche in the Swiss Alps last week. Rest in peace. And now, on to our honorable mentions. Shreen, who are our ice queens this week? The NWHL's Boston Pride are the first team ever to win the Isabel Cup twice. Congratulations, Beantown. This is very hard for me to say out loud formidable performance in the finals you just plowed through it congrats again brenda who are our whistleblowers get it this week (laughs) francis stephanie frappar and ukraine's katarina monsul will take charge that means officiate the fifa world cup qualifier and those will be the first two women who will do that for a men's match. In addition, there were two Mexican female match officials, and we've talked about them um, for CONCACAF. So um, this is the World Cup qualifiers. Very big deal. Blow that whistle. I love that pun. That was excellent, Jessica. Shireen, (laughs) please tell us about the barrier breakers of the week. Uh, This brings me a lot of happiness to say congrats to the team of women at T 
TSN, who are part of a historic all-women NBA broadcast covering the Toronto Raptors versus the Denver Nuggets. The Raptors ended their losing streak and won that game. Megan McPeak, Kianurst on the play-by-play, Kayla Gray on the sidelines, Kate Burness and Amy Audebert in the studio for the show. Brava, ladies. I just want to add that this is followed by an all-women and non-binary coverage chain for the Sacramento Kings game versus the Cavs, the Cleveland Cavaliers, including friend of the show, Leisha Clarendon. We love them, support this, want to see so much more of this, not just in Women's History Month. We remain not men in other months of the year as well. Brenda, who are our footy champions? Footy champions are Brazil's Guerreras Grenas, the new Libertadores Femenina champions. They beat America de Cali Femenino 2-1 to clinch the trophy. All of that is available on Comeval's Facebook. Can I get a drumroll, please? Our torchbearer this week is legendary basketballer Elgin Baylor, who died this week at the age of 86. He led Seattle University to the NCAA championship game in 1958 and was then drafted by the Minneapolis Lakers. He won Rookie of the Year in his first season and was the All-Star Game MVP. He ended up playing 14 seasons for the Minneapolis and Los Angeles Lakers, earning NBA All-Star honors 11 times with 10 first-team All-NBA appearances. He averaged a double-double for his career, posting 27.4 points and 13.5 rebounds per game over his entire career. He played in the NBA Finals eight times, never won a ring though. He was the first player to score 70 points in an NBA game and he still holds the single game finals scoring record with 61 points against the Celtics in 1962. But there's more. After he retired in 1971, Baylor coached the New Orleans Jazz and then was vice president of basketball operations for the Los Angeles Clippers. He was named NBA Executive of the Year in 2005-2006 when the Clippers won 47 games and made the Western Conference semifinals. And Baylor did that while being subjected to age and racial discrimination under the infamous racist owner of the Clippers, Donald Sterling. Baylor said that he worked for Sterling because of the limited job opportunities for black former players and the need to provide for his family. He was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 1977. The Lakers retired his jersey in 1983 and honored him with a statue in 2018. His wife, Elaine, released a statement after Baylor's death that read in part, quote, Elgin was the love of my life and my best friend. And like everyone else, I was in awe of his immense courage, dignity, and the time he gave to all his fans. Rest in peace, Mr. Baylor. Thank you for everything. Okay. What is good in our world? I'm going to go first on this one, too. I actually volunteered again yesterday at the mass vaccination site. It was my third time. And because I'd been there before, I have been checking people in. So I was the first person that they would talk to when they arrived in their cars and you check them in, make sure they were in the system. And then they would drive off to wherever the medical tent was where they would actually get their vaccination. But because I had done this before, they needed volunteers in the actual medical part. And so those of us who'd been there and done the check-in part, they thought it would be interesting and fun for us to do the medical side. So I actually did that yesterday. I saw over 100 people physically get their second dose of the Moderna vaccine. I was just like the person like opening Band-Aid packages. And like you had to write the time on their windshield for how long they had to sit in the observation area. So I did like really like I was not doing any of the vaccine, like anything to do with the actual vaccination itself. But um, the one story I'll tell is that there was a guy who rolled up in his truck and he looked like he was probably in his 50s, I guess. And his dad was in the passenger side and he looked 
old and, and frail. And when his dad got his shot, this man just started crying. Like he was just the relief Aww. on his face was so palpable. Aww. And it was just a really beautiful moment. And so back uh, volunteering at the site has just been so amazing during all of this. I hope to go back next week and actually won't be on the show next week because on Saturday, Aaron and I are scheduled at that site to get our second Pfizer dose. So I'd li- I hope to volunteer uh, that morning before we actually get our dose because I just love it so much. So that has been really good. And then I just wanted to mention last night, I watched Sound of Metal on Amazon starring Riz Ahmed. And it was... Yeah, like I was crying at the end. Like I, I thought it was a very beautiful film. Uh, Shireen, what's good with you? Um, thank you, Dr. Luther. I just wanted to say that. Uh, no, I just teased Jess about that, but I just, in light of your medical interaction, I thought oh, that I was see. A- okay. appropriate. Got it. Got it. Uh, for those that don't know, I make my dad and my sons refer to Jessica as Dr. Luther. It brings me a lot of happiness. And they do. And they do. Um, I wanted to say just on that, and I will try not to cry. My parents got vaccinated this week, which was hugely important for me. Mm-hmm. And I just care about my parents getting vaccinated. And I was having this conversation with Santa Herrera, um, and who's a friend of mine, friend of the show, and also a soccer writer. And we both felt a lot of things about our parents getting vaccinated. Um, and there's a there's an immense relief and a joy, as Jessica was talking about. And I just want to hold that because... I don't care if I go last. I want my kids and my parents particularly to be vaccinated. Um, And on that note, friendships. Like, friendships have been carrying me through the week. It's been a hard week. For those of you students that are in school and stuff, everything's coming down the pipeline. You've got so many due dates. I see you. I feel you. It's happening for me, too. And the NCAA basketball women's tournament is giving me joy. By the time this episode drops, there would have been a result between Baylor and UConn, the team that I love. The Huskies play Monday night against Baylor. I will be a huge ball of stress that night, but that's okay. I also attended... um, a BIPOC group that's based in Toronto. It was an online meeting, a space to talk about loss and grief. And particularly in the pandemic, it was an incredibly important thing. So thank you to Vicky Machama for telling me about it and me participating in it. And the way that this group was run was beautiful for people from racialized and ethnic communities to talk about their experience in COVID and how they experience loss of any kind and grief and how the structures of white supremacy affect that and how we grieve. I just also wanted to say, two things really quickly. And on that note, um, I don't know if any of you caught the tweet where I shared artist Tracy Park. She is a Korean artist who shared a comic strip that she wrote about being a soccer player who's Asian and being verbally attacked and, and racially abused while she was on the field, but her teammates stepped in. That spoke a lot to me because of my own experience. And so I reached out to Tracy and she incredibly generously sent me the comic And I love it. And I'm so grateful to her. And I was like, listen, I'll pay you. And she said no. And so she said, I consider the podcast that you did on anti-Asian, you know, uh, hate in sport to be an exchange of labor. And it was just really beautiful. And that made me cry. And I love that. Thank you, Tracy, so much. I'm a fan forever. Lastly, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, me and my children are watching this. Love it. I'm a big Bucky fan. I'm a Falcon fan. And I'll keep you posted on that experience. I have not started it yet, but we will be watching it at some point. Um, Bryn, what's good with you? (laughs) You can do it. I can. I can. Actually, there's, I mean, things with me on the personal level are fine. Again, loving spring, loving not having to wear a parka um, while I jog outside. That's really liberating. It's been a long winter and that's very cumbersome. Talking to friends on my jogs 
always wonderful, including my two co-hosts right now, Shireen and, and Jess. I spent a long time with you on the phone this week while I was jogging, and it makes it go by, and I love it, and it's fun. Um, but in my other capacity, you know, of life, I'm really excited to see the Norwegian and German team saying fuck you in regard to the Qatar 2022 and starting to like, starting to disrupt and wear these t-shirts and be like, and they have the t-shirts that are like, Germany, Norway, who's next? Like who's next? Like challenging other teams. Like we have to say something now that qualifying's happening. Now that COVID's happening, this this 2022 World Cup might actually happen, and it shouldn't. And the abusive workers shouldn't go unchecked. And we talked about refugees on this episode, so I have to say the fact that there are just thousands of documented workers, particularly from South Asia, that are there whose passports have been taken, who have been abused, who have not been paid, who are economic refugees in their own right, it needs to be recognized. And I'm just in awe of um, people right now like Erling Holland, who, Shireen, another what's good, and I got in a fight about whether he should be overvalued from Mbappe as a player. The, Why would you even say that to Because me? I'm about to say, I think it's so cool that at 20 years old, he's willing and seems truly enthusiastic and care about this. And we've said players don't have to. We don't expect them to. But he's a guy who comes from a lot of stability and privilege. And fuck yeah, if you're going to go out there and start to like stir it up, thank you very much. So that's what's good. You will get a voice note from me right after this recording. (laughs) I have no doubt. And I will send you clips that I have been saving and editing to prove to you why Erling Holland is a force to be reckoned with in global football. So what we are watching this week... By the time y'all hear this, the NCAA basketball tournaments, both of them, they'll be very close to setting their final four. It'll be the end of the Elite Eight for both men's and women's. The Miami Open, the so-called fifth slam, is underway. It'll run through April 4th. And in football, we'll be watching the Africa Cup of Nations and the Liga Mexicana Femenil Clausura. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. On behalf of all of us here, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by Allie Lemer. Shelby Weldon does our website, episode transcripts, and social media. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and tune in all of the places. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. From there, you can email us directly or go shopping for our merchandise. As always, an evergreen thank you to our patrons for your support. It means the world. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown.com.